We're continuing on in our series of the life of Abraham, and this morning we'll be in verses 1 through 15. During the 18th century, the Scottish philosopher David Hume profoundly influenced the worldviews of his day. At the tip of the spear of the Scottish Enlightenment, Hume stridently denied any existence of miracles. His famous treatise, entitled Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, famously lays forth all the arguments against divine disruptions, against natural laws. To this day, Hume remains a great influence to countless religious skeptics the world over. Yet what students of history often overlook is that the Renaissance and British Enlightenment thinkers were not the first to deny miracles. No, the denial of miracles, namely the denial of God's sovereign ability to violate so-called natural laws of nature, is hardly a recent phenomenon. Rather, such denial is as old as the Genesis narrative itself. Moreover, Scripture reveals that even heroes of the Christian faith have wrestled with God's ability to accomplish the impossible. Emmanuel Church, for our purposes, what we must understand is that if there are no miracles, our faith is futile. This gathering is completely pointless. If there are no miracles, we're still in our sins. And if there are no miracles, death is the end. And if there are no miracles, then our hope is only in this life, and we of all people are most to be pitied. So with this in mind, let's Read the narrative of Genesis 18, and we'll be in verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, which I bring while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Let's skip down to verse nine. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's go once more to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word, specifically that you would humble us, and we ask that your word would teach us to expect great things from our God, that we would understand that you are truly an omnipotent God, and Father, we ask that your word would help us to think high thoughts of you and high thoughts of Christ. May it humble us as sinners, and Lord, may it lead us to holiness. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this text, though seemingly obscure and abrupt, it lays forth one of the most important truths in Scripture, and I trust you already have noticed it, and that is the incredible, the extraordinary 
the irrefutable, the inescapable, the almighty power of the living God. This morning, I have three points or three headings uh, that I want to lay forth before you, and I'm going to spend most of my time on the third point, but my three headings are as follows. First, a repeated promise. Secondly, a faltering faith. And third, an almighty God. First, a repeated promise, a faltering faith, and an almighty God. Please consider first with me a repeated promise. We're in Genesis 18. These are shortly after the events of Genesis 17. And God visits Abraham once again at the Oaks of Mamre. And what we have in verses 1 through 8 is God calling on Abraham. And he's calling on Abraham through what I believe to be angels, messengers, or or divine agents. Now, if you study this text in depth, there are some scholars who would believe that those the text describes as three men are actually the Lord himself accompanied by angels. That said, brothers and sisters, it's, it's not my aim this morning to settle the question of precisely who these men are. Personally, it seems to me that the narrative in Genesis 18 is seeking to preserve an air of mystery about who these agents are. Yet what's clear in the text is Abraham's urgency to serve and show hospitality to these messengers. We see Abraham running out to meet these men, rather undignified for a man of his stature and his status. We see Abraham uh, uh, pleading with them to eat with him and stay with him. We see Abraham rushing around his household arranging a feast for these visitors. Fundamentally, we see an Abraham who with his heart warmed by the promises of God, is eager to show the Lord generosity and show him attention and urgency. And this leads, me, leads the Lord to review his promise with Abraham. Look at verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So one of the things that we see here is God graciously in his kindness reviewing his promise with Abraham. Yet by verse 9, we realize that the focus of this encounter is not Abraham. Rather, under the shade of the oaks of Mamre, the Lord is meant to have dealings with his servant Sarah, the wife of Abraham. So much for a a repeated promise. Let's consider secondly... A faltering faith. A faltering faith. I don't know if you're like me, but I find Sarah's story uh, absolutely fascinating. Think of her experience up to this point in the Bible. Her experience with her husband, her experience with the promises of God, her experience with the Lord himself. When we're introduced to Sarah, then called Sarai in Genesis 11, she's just the barren wife of some rando from Ur of the Chaldeans. She's a nobody, and her husband is a nobody. Yet by Genesis 12, still all she knows is that God promises her husband, then called Abram, he promises Abram what? He promises him land, seed, and blessing. And then she's then to leave her home, all she's ever known, with this Abram, trusting this promise of God. She's dragged over all of God's green earth for decades, At one point, her husband pawns her off to Pharaoh in Egypt, betrays his marriage with her. At another point, because of her barrenness, she and Abram, they arrange that whole affair with Hagar, and she subsequently deals rather wickedly with Hagar. Yet throughout all these events, God has been communicating with with her husband, but never directly to her. Can you appreciate the difficulty of her experience Abram, God told you what? We're going where? He's going to give you a son. Oh, okay. Does he know how old we are? He's going to give you land. He's going to bless you with many children. He's going to bless the nations through you. Oh, you're going to have the son with me. Oh, your name is Abraham now. My name is Sarah now. Oh, can you appreciate the, the complexity and the, the, the tension, the, 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 the challenges of her circumstances and the challenges to her faith? 
And the reason, brothers and sisters, I bring this up is in a moment we're going to consider Sarah's sin. And I don't want to diminish her sin at all. But I think it's appropriate that as we learn from Sarah's sin, we at the same time recognize the great challenges to her faith. As we will see in the biblical narrative of Sarah's life, her faith represents the type of faltering faith that marks just so many of us, that marks so many of the Lord's saints. Belief fraught with unbelief. Faith mingled with remaining sin. And godly priorities corrupted by earthly thinking. So Christian, what I want you to ask yourself this morning is where do you see yourself reflected in the narrative of Sarah's life? Where do you see yourself in Sarah's story? Because she's not too unlike us. And I believe there's something for all of us to learn in God's dealings with Sarah. So let's pick up in verse 11. In response to the promise, the text says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? They pointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. We're considering a faltering faith, and first, under this heading, let's consider Sarah's sin. Now, Sarah's sin, I think you can see from the text, was, was twofold. First, Sarah laughs. Sarah laughs at the promise of God. Perhaps this was the first time she had heard that God intended for her to bear the promised son. My assumption is that after the events of Genesis 17, Abraham would have shared that with his wife, but regardless, this is the first time she's hearing it from the mouth of the Lord himself. And big surprise, like husband, like wife. Just as Abraham laughed at the promise of God in Genesis 17, so Sarah laughs at the promise of God that she herself would bear Isaac. She, like Abraham, thought it was folly to think that a hundred-year-old man could impregnate his 90-year-old wife. She doubted God's promise. Now, friends, this certainly is not the main point of this text, and it's definitely not the main point of this sermon, but I think it's appropriate, appropriate for us to notice just as a good marriage is to have a sanctifying influence in the lives of couples, both the husband and the wife, it can do the precise opposite. By God's kindness and God's grace, he is pleased to use marriage to refine the character of believers. He is pleased to use marriage at context to confront sin and to mortify it. Grace increases in the context of marriage. The fruit of the Spirit increase. Yet... If a couple chooses not to walk by the Spirit of God, if they choose not to prioritize the disciplines of grace, they will find themselves likely to be corrupting influences of one another. I just find this to be true in Scripture, and I find this to be true in life. A Christian marriage can do one of two things. It can either fortify one's walk, one's walk with Christ, one's discipleship of Christ, or it can erode it. It can challenge it. It can impede one's walk with Christ. I know some spouses who will say, you know, I, I used to be a much more tender person before I met my husband. I used to be more, I used to be more conscientious. I used to not be so bitter. I used to have a softer heart before I met my wife, but she has just grated on me. He has just grated on me. He has impeded my walk with the Lord. He's just sucked the life out of me. I used to not be such a bitter person. Husbands, you are called to love your wife with the undying tender devotion of Christ's love to the church. How are you leading your wife? Is she growing in holiness through her union with you? Are you challenging her growth to holiness? Are you praying with her? Are you washing her with the word? Are you seeking to present her blameless on the day of Christ? Because if you haven't heard, that is your task. That is what God has called you to do in Christ. Wives, how are you influencing your husbands? 
Is your relationship spurring him on to greater gains of godliness? Are you an aid or an impediment to his holiness? Are you a help or are you a hindrance to his discipleship? One of the saddest things about the life of Abraham is that his marriage was a train wreck. I mean, it's just an utter dumpster fire. There's almost nothing commendable about the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. He offers his wife twice to to save his own skin to Pharaoh and then later Abimelech. They scheme together. They conspire together to, to circumnavigate the promise of God. And here in this text, we see that she has, I believe, learned sin from her husband. She has seen model, sin modeled by Abraham. Yet even still, Sarah's sin seems to be deeper. It seems to be more heinous because the, Lord rebukes, the Lord's rebuke of her is, is harsher than that of Abraham's in Genesis 17. It appears that Sarah's doubt in Genesis 18 was greater than Abraham's in Genesis 17. And I think this is true because Sarah's sin was, was so deep, it so permeated her life that the sin doesn't end here for her. Because notice, secondly, Sarah doesn't just laugh at God's promise. Secondly, Sarah lies. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 15. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. We see quickly Sarah's private reflection had not slipped the attention of God. As soon as the thought could generate in her mind and the thought could pass through her lips, she was already being confronted by the Lord. And rather than repenting, she denied her laughter out of fear. Her initial sin multiplied. Her sin increased. If you have small children, you may have heard the the maxim that, that sleep begets sleep. This is something my wife tells me all the time. Sleep begets sleep. I would think that if my son misses his afternoon nap, he's more likely to go to bed early that night. And he's more likely to sleep through the entire night. This is not so. Rather, by some twisted law of nature, he's now more likely to go to bed later, and he's, likely to sleep, he's less likely to sleep through the night. It's not fair, but in my experience, it's true. Yet, at the same time, semi-regular rhythms of sleep for a child often lead to more regular rhythms of sleep. Hence, the word sleep begets sleep. Brothers and sisters, same way, sin begets sin. Sin begets sin. No individual sin is a lone wolf. They travel in packs. One sin brings with him companion vices with the express purpose to ruin your soul and to make shipwreck of your faith. Charles Simeon, commenting on this text, says, Alas, how awfully prolific is sin. It never comes alone. It brings others to justify and conceal it. Sarah doubted God. She laughed at God's promise, and then what did she do? She lied. She denied it. She sought to justify herself. Yet we see that the Lord had the final word. This had not slipped his attention. She didn't fool him for a second. By way of application here, brothers and sisters, we must know that God sees everything. The Lord sees all. There's no such thing as private sin. There's no such thing as secret sin. And listen, though this text, as we shall see, primarily highlights God's omnipotence, we see here His omniscience. He sees all. He knows all. He understands all. And my friend, do you think you can escape the all-seeing gaze of mighty God I assure you, you cannot. If you come over to my house, you'll find a lot of those Amazon Alexa devices uh, uh, around my house. I happen to not fear the robots. I've embraced the robots. They're in my house, and they can play whatever song I ask her to. Um, If Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, if he desired to hear me and Aaron talk over dinner tomorrow night, All he would have to do is break a couple of his company's policies and probably a couple laws, but he's able to do that. He's able to do it. Now, the joke would be on him 
because to most people, there's nothing really interesting about my life. It's, it's, it's quite plain. It's quite ordinary. And I don't think he would care for my hot takes on church history or uh, season four of The Crown. I just don't have that much of an interesting life. Brothers and sisters, regardless of what you think about Amazon or Jeff Bezos, you must understand that we are never alone. We worship a God who sees everything. And my friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know you, like all of us, your life is laid bare before an almighty God. And your life is laid bare from a sovereign judge who sees everything. And you may have found a way to to fool your friends, and you may show up to church, and you may fool the pastor, and you may have found a way to scrub up your life and look clean on the outside, but you will never fool the Lord. He can discern the thoughts and intentions of men. He can see your heart. And he knitted you in your mother's womb. Everything there is to know about you, he knows already. And to the, to the unbeliever, this is horrifying news. This is fearful news, but to the Christian, to the Christian, this is thrilling news because this means that the sovereign Lord who can see everything with full knowledge of my life, full knowledge of my past, my present, and my future, he grants me life. He forgives me. He knows that in Christ, all I have is in him, and he, I can have life in the Lord. He shows mercy to all those who have faith in him. My friend, you must know if you're outside of Christ, if you turn to Jesus today, our God, with full knowledge of your sin, will receive you on the merits of Christ. And so it was in the case of Sarah. Though Sarah was a sinner, that's not where her story ended. Because see, notice, secondly, Sarah's faith. In Genesis 18, we see nothing but a faithless Sarah. And I won't have you turn there, but Hebrews 11 reveals how it was that Sarah's faith grew. Hebrews 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Did you hear that? Since she had considered him faithful who had promised. How was it that God accomplished the impossible? It was through the instrument of faith. Faith, since she considered him faithful who had promised. God did not leave Sarah where she was. Sarah the doubter. Sarah the laugher. Sarah the liar. Sarah the denier. He gave her faith. He gave her faith to respond to God, faith to esteem him trustworthy, and faith to turn to God and lay grasp upon his promises. You understand, it's not like Sarah decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to start checking my brain at the door. I'm just going to start, you know, on a whim following, you know, the Lord's promise. It's not like she just listened to a George Michael song. I got to have faith, the faith, the faith, the faith. That's not what she went through. Faith is not a blind, check-my-brain-at-the-door, sub-rational feeling. It is a vigorous act of the soul that recognizes God's character and clings to his word. Faith, you see, brothers and sisters, does due diligence on God and through appraisal of his character rests upon his promises. What this means, friends, is, is when God's word tells me that something is going to happen and I've never seen that thing to happen before, I can know that it's as good as done. I've never seen someone rise from the dead. But God's word assures me that on the day of Christ when he returns because I love his appearing and I trust in him that I will rise and I will be with the Lord forever. And I can know that's true because as I look at the promises of God and as I look at the pronouncements and the predictions, all I see is faithful, faithful, faithful. He's undefeated. He always keeps his word. You see, that's how faith operates. It's not this blind leap of faith. It's trusting in the only one worth trusting. John Calvin, he says of faith, true faith is that which hears God speaking and rests on his promise. And look, brothers and sisters, in Sarah's case, she was not without reason for doubt. Ninety years gone by, 90 years, no child. The text says she was worn out. She and Abraham were aged. 
the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And it's not, we're more privileged than her. It's not as if she had seen or heard many miracles before. I don't think Sarah would have had much of a frame of reference for God sovereignly acting outside of natural means. Yet God, in his loving kindness to her, graciously granted her the understanding that he would keep his word through any means necessary. Though she faltered, Sarah ultimately preserved with the faith in an almighty God. This brings me to my last heading, my last point. This is where we'll spend most of our time. An almighty God. We've considered a repeated promise. We've considered a faltering faith. And now last, an almighty God. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. In the divine rebuke of Sarah, there's this kind of what may seem like a throwaway line that is anything too hard for the Lord. Now, I think within this context alone, it's worth the rest of our attention this morning. However, in the time remaining, I want us to see how it is that the inspired authors of the Bible expound this truth. And not just this truth, but, but the words that we see in Genesis 18, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything impossible? Is anything too mighty or difficult for Him? It's a rhetorical question with the short answer being no. Yet God, in His kindness, and through His word, goes out of His way to quote this text again and again and again throughout the Bible. And he shows us the things that can only be accomplished through his sovereign hand. So I want us to highlight three texts that reflect on Genesis 18, 14. And what I want us to notice are just three impossible things that God wants you as his child to know can only happen from his hand. Can only happen by his power. So would you turn to Jeremiah 32. And the first impossible thing that God can do, it takes an almighty God to create a new covenant. It takes an almighty God to create a new covenant. This is Jeremiah. This is some 1,300 years after Abraham. And if you were in the equip class from a few weeks ago, Alex, uh, in a class on believer's baptism, he opened up Jeremiah 31. Now, what's going on in Jeremiah? Well, in the prophet Jeremiah... The kingdoms are divided between the, Israel's divided between the southern and the northern kingdom. And Jeremiah, he is a prophet to Judah. And at this point in Jeremiah 32, he's imprisoned by the king Zedekiah because Jeremiah keeps prophesying bad things about Judah. Zedekiah, as a king, he didn't really value a free press. He imprisons Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah, like many of the prophets, had been commissioned by God to announce judgment, the judgment of God as stipulated in the Old Covenant, as stipulated through the national Old Mosaic Covenant. And that covenant demanded that the sin of the Israelites, that they were to be taken into captivity. So let's pick up in Genesis 32, or Jeremiah 32, excuse me, verse 17. Jeremiah speaking, he says, I prayed to the Lord, Or I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That's the words of Genesis 18. Look at verse 21. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. What Jeremiah is saying here is, you, God, have accomplished impossible things for your people. Verse 23. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it, and because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. 
This is Jeremiah speaking to the Lord, and then the Lord replies. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. What is God saying here? Saying, I, the Lord, who can do anything, will judge Israel, Israel and Judah for their sins. And he continues, verse 30. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Verse 33. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They build the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now friends, why do I draw attention to this? What do we have going on here? We see God justly venting his wrath on an unfaithful nation that has heinously violated his covenant. What are we to see here? Well, friends, it is difficult to imagine a more hopeless situation than this. It's difficult for us to imagine a more hopeless scenario than God's relationship with Israel. Can any good come out, of, come out from here? It's difficult to imagine a more desperate, a more tragic scenario. But the prophecy suddenly takes a dramatic turn. You see, brothers and sisters, the same God, the same God who justly visits Israel and Judah with judgment, he promises a new covenant. Look at, verses 30, look at verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city to which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to the place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of, my, of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Brothers and sisters, God pledges an everlasting covenant where he will issue faith within the heart of people. The God for whom all things are possible will miraculously redeem, redeem people. And this is why that the prophets so often use metaphors of impossible things to communicate to people. The God, this God, he will lend flesh to dry bones. He will breathe life into souls. He will exchange hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. This is the same eternal covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, where God says, I will put my law within them. My friend, you cannot put the Lord's law within your heart takes a work of the Almighty God. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Emmanuel, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who has the right? Who has the ability? Who has the power but God alone to forgive the sins of men? Who can redeem people but God alone? Who can ratify a saving covenant but God alone? My brothers and sisters, it takes an almighty God to make a new covenant. It is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too mighty? Is anything impossible for God? Secondly, it takes an almighty God to send his son. It takes an almighty God to open the virgin's womb. Turn to Luke 1. 
We read Luke 1 often during Advent. We went through Luke 1 as a church last year. And in Luke 1, we have these angelic visits. Zechariah is visited by the angel, and he's promised that uh, his wife Elizabeth will give birth to John the Baptist. And then we have the angel visit Mary. And what does the angel promise Mary? Well, he tells her that she will conceive and bear a son, and that she will name him Jesus, and that he will be a son of the Most High, and that he will reign on his, father, his father's David's throne forever. And do you remember how Mary responds to this promise? Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. Sound familiar? And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Reflecting on God's faithfulness to Sarah, nothing will be impossible with God. Brothers and sisters, it takes an all-powerful God to open the virgin's womb. It takes an almighty God to send his son. It takes an almighty God to establish him on his throne forever. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Thirdly, it takes an almighty God to save sinners. It takes an almighty God to save sinners. Sinners, turn to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, we have the account of the rich young ruler, or what some gospels call the rich young man. I trust many of you are familiar with the, the story. This man who has wealth, this man who has prominence, who has prestige in society, he approaches Jesus, and what does he ask Jesus? He asks Jesus, How can I be saved, essentially? How can I inherit eternal life? How can I enter the kingdom of God? And you remember how Jesus responded to him. Eventually, he he, he says to him, there's one thing you lack. There's one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And then what does the man do? He goes home sorrowful because he had great possessions. And this leads Jesus into a discourse with his disciples, and this is what I want us to pick up. Verse 23 of Matthew 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying there? Well, he's imagining what to the disciples would have been the largest animal they could think of, and that is a camel, and that camel going through the smallest opening he can think of, and that's the eye of a needle. What Jesus is saying is it's easier for the former to pass through the latter than a rich man to come to faith. It's easier for an impossible thing to happen than for anyone to be saved. And I say anyone because... Though Jesus is making special emphasis on the danger of wealth, look how the disciples respond. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Can you imagine being one of the Lord's disciples then? You're learning what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to enter the kingdom? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to go to heaven? What does it mean to have eternal life? And here Jesus says, it's easier for a camel Go through the eye of a needle. How am I going to be right with God? I can't go through a needle. That sounds impossible. I can't issue that sort of discipleship. How am I going to follow Jesus? How can anybody be saved? Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Dunimas, all things are able, they're possible. That statement, with God, all things are possible, is actually a, a rendering of the Greek version of Genesis 18, 14. So Jesus is saying here, look, 
to save and forgive sinners would not be the first impossible thing the Lord has accomplished. Emmanuel, do you understand? To save sinners requires the unilateral saving power of God. The unilateral saving power of God. There is absolutely nothing we bring to the table. We sing that hymn, Not In Me. Such a negative, depressing song. Not in me. What does the third verse say? No separation from the world. No work I do, no gift I give. Can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? We cannot issue faith within our hearts. We cannot regenerate ourselves. We can't enter into our mother's womb again and be born again. We need a work of God's spirit. We have to be, brothers and sisters, we have to be a people that feel this to our bones. It takes an almighty God to save people. It takes an almighty God to create a new covenant. It takes a mighty God to open the virgin's womb. It takes a mighty God to breathe life into a soul, to soften hearts, to save sinners, to make a rich man stop loving money, to make me mortify this sin in my life, to restore my marriage after so much bitterness, to save my child, to save my grandfather. These are things we cannot accomplish, but these are things that happen every day by the almighty power of a loving God. And the Lord Jesus assures us with man these, yeah, with man these things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. Indeed, all of these things are impossible for us. Brothers and sisters, we need an almighty God who can do anything, and God's word assures us we do. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. I want to close with three applications for us today based on this ever-important truth. First, Emmanuel, let us appreciate let us appreciate the miracles God accomplishes in our lives. Let us appreciate the miracles that God accomplishes in our lives. When I was 10 years old, God saved me. I was 10 years old, and God saved me, and he gave me a love for his gospel, and he gave me a love for his church. That is a miracle. That's something a man cannot accomplish on his own that took the spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, we must believe this. Christian, when you were dead in your sins, you didn't just need an attitude adjustment. You didn't need a pep talk. You didn't need the right person to make the right argument. You needed the power of God. You needed to be born again by the Spirit. There's only one person who can do this. As a blind man, you needed sight. You were dead, the Bible says. You were buried, the Bible says. You were condemned, the Bible says. And the Lord lifted you and gave you life. And you may be a Christian, and you look at your story, you look at your life, you look at the, what may seem to you just pitiful manifestations of the grace of God in your life, and you might think you're quite ordinary. You're not special. There's nothing incredible about your story. My friend, I assure you, God's word assures us that while we were still weak, while we were still dead in our trespasses, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's a miracle. And we're told in John 1 that those who receive him, who believe in his name, are called God's children. By what means are we called God's children? Not by blood, not by the will of flesh, not any human ability, not by the will of man, but of God. Let us appreciate the miracles wrought by God in our lives. And brothers and sisters, let this chasten us. Let this chasten our low expectations of God. Let this chasten our low expectations of what God can do. How can God forgive my past? I'm such a sinner. 
I've returned to the sin like a dog to a vomit again and again and again and again. How can God forgive me again? That's impossible. How can God restore my marriage after years of brokenness and pain and so much bitterness? How can God save my son who's so closed off to the gospel? Who's so closed off to the things of God? How can God? He's never going to do that. How can God actually use me to communicate the truth of the gospel to my neighbor and to my coworker and to my family? How is it that we could see revival in Winston-Salem and revival in North Carolina? That's the stuff of fairy tales. That's the stuff of history books. That's the stuff of legends. Surely God isn't going to do that. Brothers and sisters, let us repent for our small-mindedness. We worship the God who opened Sarah's womb. The God who established and ratified a new covenant because he was determined to save people. A God who opened the virgin's womb, a God who forgives sinners. Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Secondly, let this truth suppress any confidence in human ability. Let this truth suppress any confidence in human ability. And I wanna apply this specifically to our life together, our life as a church. Emmanuel, who builds the church? Who is it that raises the house? And what confidence do we strive? And what confidence do we go to the nations? The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If the Lord does not raise the house, The laborers work in vain. Everything here, my sermon prep, the musicians' rehearsals, your prayers before we gather, it is worthless. The Spirit of God doesn't work. I was at a pastor's conference this week, and the topic of conversation at these types of conferences is church revitalization and church planting. These things come up, and... um, By God's grace, we planted this church four years ago, and by God's help and God's grace, I I hope to plant a church in a few years if if God is pleased to to use us that way. And uh, church planting's a funny business. They're they're usually not successful, church plants, uh, in in our eyes or, or, or the world's eyes. They usually don't last more than five years. And by God's grace, that wasn't the case for us. We were quickly established as a church here at Emmanuel. God gave us elders, God gave us people. God was, was pleased to let us see baptisms. God has given us a spirit of unity. And at these conferences, you'll often get in conversations and you get to just share about God's goodness to, to us. And, uh, but you'll get questions. How have, how have you been able to accomplish that? How have, you, how have so many people come to your church? How are you seeing sinners saved? What are you guys doing how did you guys strategize? How did you guys uh, uh, organize to reach Winston the way you did? Well, have you heard Alex's preaching? He's just so gifted. I mean, he's God's gift to Winston-Salem. And, and you know what? He's so, he's so skilled, and, and, and of course we're growing. Of course God is blessing us. Or, you know, we're a Reformed Baptist church, and we just really met a felt need of the community in Winston-Salem, so it's appropriate. We, we, we understand. Yeah, we, of course we grew in God's kindness. Or, you know what? We just planned so well. I mean, we got the right team together. Ben's a winning personality. You know, of course. We got people together, and God blessed and gave us increase. Do you realize how ridiculous that sounds? Do you realize how insane that sounds and how unbiblical that thinking is? Brothers and sisters, everything we do here is useless unless the Spirit of God is pleased to work in us. And I know many of you believe that, but you need to preach that to yourself so you feel that in your bones and you feel that in the core of your, be- in the core of your being. All is vain, unless the Spirit 
of the Lord our God comes down. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Our faith is not in men. It's not in human gifting. It's not in money. Our faith is in the sovereign power of the God who can do anything. I'll just say, the story of Abraham and Sarah is the story of people who sought every human means possible to achieve God's means for him. Yet all God required was faith that he would accomplish his work, that he would accomplish his promise in due season through the appointed means. We sang it this morning in Psalm 146, put no confidence in princes, nor on men for help depend. He is blessed whose hope of blessing on the Lord his God is stayed. Let this truth, brothers and sisters, diminish any confidence you have in human ability. Lastly, brothers and sisters, let this truth, this truth that nothing is too hard for God, let this rouse our faith to expect great things from God. Let this truth rouse our faith to expect great things from God. Scripture tells us that God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Let's start living like it. We so often act like that's not true. God is able, dunemas, he is able to do far more abundantly than we even ask or think. Brothers and sisters, let's start living like that's true. Let's start worshiping like that's true. Let's start singing like that's true. Let's start preaching and praying like that's true. Let this, this truth, brothers and sisters, that all things are possible, let this rouse us to expectancy when we worship. God is able to do far more abundantly. And we know that all things, for those who love God and according to his purpose, they work together for good. Let this rouse us to expectancy when we gather for worship. What will God do in these walls? What will God do in our midst? He's promised, Jesus has promised his presence. God, what will you do? Let this rouse us to faith when we gather for prayer. What will God give us for which we ask? And brothers and sisters, let this fortify us. Let this rouse us to faith as we go to our neighbors and nations with the confidence of the gospel. Who will be saved by his power? What will my God do? Brothers and sisters, we worship a God who can do anything. Is anything too hard for our Lord? Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon your word now. And Father, we confess how often we choose to worship a small God, a God incapable of doing wondrous things in our lives. But Lord, that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God that you have revealed to us in Scripture. So we ask that you would enliven our faith, that you would give us sight to appraise and esteem your character rightly, and that you would enliven us such that we would expect great things from your sovereign hand. Father, everything we do here, we believe it is pointless unless you work through us. So Father, please bless our worship, move in us we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.